Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We're so happy to have you join us. Hope you can give us, as we always ask for, 90 minutes. We've got our broadcast partners all over the world ready to give you information, helping you to understand how current events are really setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Now, today we start the program on a very sad note. One of our longtime broadcast partners, Dr. Rennie Showers, last evening went to be with the Lord in the heavenlies. Of course, he's in the arms of Jesus, and we're still down here going through all the activities we have to on a daily basis. But everybody who has loved him for these many years and relied upon him for theological answers to questions we'd come up with in the Bible, I called him often about a theological problem that I may be having. He always gave me a biblical answer. I appreciated his life and his ministry in my life. And our opportunity here on uh, Prophecy Today to have him visit with us often, it was so key to helping everybody come to a better understanding, a biblical understanding of God's end-time activities. Dr. Elwood McQuaid, who was the director of Friends for Israel, he's the one that hired Rennie Showers to join that organization. Rennie traveled for them. He wrote many books, excellent books on eschatology that you want to read now especially. And uh, in fact, uh, Elwood is going to come with me on this broadcast at the broadcast table to talk about Rennie Showers in memorial. We'll do that next week. The memorial activities will take place at the Calvary Church there in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania on next Saturday. But we'll, on our broadcast, have a conversation with Elwood and some of our memories of Dr. Rennie Showers. Pray for the family. Pray for Ellie, his wife of some 57 years, and their daughters. Pray that they'll have the comfort and understanding of what has now taken place. Well, let's get into the broadcast. That's exactly what Rennie would want me to do. So we're going to go right now to Ken Timmerman. Ken is the man who looks at geopolitical activities for us around the world. And Ken, let me begin with this. There was a meeting in Moscow this week between the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, and the President of Russia, Vladimir Putin. It was an urgently called meeting. We've learned that it was the Prime Minister of Israel who requested the meeting, but immediately Putin was very eager to get together. They've got some problems with Iran going back into Aleppo, setting up an organization up there. Uh, They've got all the problems with these members of the world that are states mentioned in Bible prophecy to want to attack Israel, and now you've got Syria making some claims they're going to take back the Golden Heights. What about this meeting in Moscow? Pretty important meeting between these two leaders, wasn't it? Big meeting indeed, Jimmy, and it's important to talk about it here. It does not get a lot of play in the American media. Netanyahu is very concerned because uh, the Israelis, bit by bit, have worked out a kind of modus vivendi with Russia, and this is because of Netanyahu's personal diplomacy with Vladimir Putin. When he has a problem, he talks to Putin on the phone, or he goes directly to Moscow to talk with Putin. This is something that President Trump has been prohibited from doing by the Russia scandals for the past two, two years. The, uh, the investigation, the fake collusion allegations, have prohibited Trump from having that kind of direct relationship. Putin has been blowing hot and cold towards Israel. We've talked about this several times. But this past week, what the two leaders talked about, actually just this past Thursday, 
was the movement by Iran of its military headquarters from Damascus, the Damascus airport area, up to Aleppo. They were hoping, the Iranians were hoping, that this would put them within the protection zone of Russian-supplied S-300 and S-400 air defense missiles, uh, and that that would prevent the IDF Air Force, the Israeli Air Force, from bombing the Iranians. Uh, and Israel has really done tremendous damage to the Iranian infrastructure in Syria over the past couple of months, and they've done that, again, through this cooperation and this open red line between Jerusalem and, and Moscow. So Netanyahu wanted to confirm with Putin that Israel can continue to bomb Iranian assets in Syria without incurring the wrath of Russia or, obviously, those S-300 and S-400 uh, missiles. You know, it's an opportune meeting for the Prime Minister of Israel as the elections are coming up on Tuesday. Uh, but there were some serious discussions, as you've just related to us, that had to go on between these two political world leaders. Well, what about, I mentioned Syria just a moment ago, they made a vow to recapture the Golden Heights from Israel by any means that they need to use. Boy, that's somewhat of a threat. It is a threat, and, and the Syrians have been making that over the past two weeks. Uh, I happen to think it's an idle threat uh, because they just don't have the military assets to retake the Golan Heights. They didn't, haven't had the military assets to retake their country from ISIS over the past five years either. So this is Syrian chest-thumping at its best. You had the, the foreign minister, Mo'alem, uh, chastising fellow Arab leaders, saying that Britain has condemned the United States for recognizing Israel's annexation of the Golan Heights more than you have. And, Jimmy, i got to caveat just one thing on Syria, is that the Syrian government barely exists any longer. So when they say they want to retake the Golan, they're really not so much talking for themselves. You could almost say that they have become a proxy of Iran. So this is really the Iranians speaking. Yes. And that, I think, is the true significance of that statement. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. And according to Scripture, Syria will make that move to come into the Golan Heights and use it as a launch pad. But, uh, you know, any of these things could happen with everything that is going on, and that's why we continually have Ken on the air with us at this broadcast table to explain the political so we can talk about the prophetic. The United States warning Turkey over going into Syria with an invasion trying to take out the Syrian Kurds who are main fighters for the United States against Islamic State. And I want to talk about Erdogan losing some elections there in Turkey. But first, let's go to that. Is the United States in a position to really tell Turkey to not invade Syria at this time? Uh, yes. And the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, has been pretty emphatic about this, repeatedly warning Turkey not to go into northern Syria again. It would be the third military incursion. The Turks have a problem, is that uh, they do not have the logistics train to support a major invasion of northern Syria. Uh, the past two times when they've gone in, it has been, they've sort of dipped their toes across the border, whacked some Kurds, and then moved into position local Arab units who were actually pretty close to the ISIS fighters they were uh, supposedly uh, going in to replace. And that's what the Turks probably have in mind. But even here, the United States is, is drawing the line and saying, no, we don't want you in there 
especially we don't want you attacking or having your proxies attack our Kurdish allies in northern Syria. Well, that conversation with the Secretary of State Pompeo extended into the threat from the United States. Not really a threat, a promise. They've actually, I think, already stopped the delivery of any F-35s, the stealth fighter jet, into Turkey because Turkey's been playing footsie over there with Russia, and they are supposedly acquiring those S-400 ground-to-air anti-missile weapons that can take down any attack from a missile over the airspace of of Turkey. And the United States says, no, we're not going to give you F-35s if you get those S-400 missile, anti-missile attacks. Well, thank goodness. And I think that was Vice President Pence who who basically cautioned the Turks against buying the S-400s. But frankly, the idea that we would even consider selling them our top-of-the-line stealth fighter, the F-35, just defies comprehension. I think this is something that came from what you would call the military-industrial complex. Uh, It it came from uh, professionals in the Pentagon who make their living by promoting foreign arms sales and by the exporting companies themselves hoping to offset the cost of, of ramping up production. This was not a Trump administration initiative. I think this came from the industry and came from the professionals in the military, and I'm glad that the politicians, uh, the vice president and the president, stepped in to put an end to any sale to Turkey of the F-35. I cannot get away from Turkey. Tayyip Erdogan, who is uh, the president, it seemed like he was president for life. That may have changed a little bit. They had some elections and national elections, not to elect a president again, but more locally to take charge of uh, different cities. The two major cities, Ankara, which is the capital, and Istanbul, the largest city in Turkey, they both lost as it relates to Erdogan's political party, that weakening Erdogan enough that he will get rid of his ambition to be the caliph and the caliphate of the world? Uh, well, that, that's right. And this loss of the Ankara uh, mayorship uh, and possibly of Istanbul, the results are not yet finalized there, uh, is, is really, it really is a big blow to Erdogan. Uh, it's the first national electoral challenge since the Turkish lira lost 30% of its value last August. And I think it shows that the Turkish people are waking up a little bit to Erdogan's mismanagement of the economy. It doesn't suggest yet that they are upset with his broader uh, ambitions, which you just laid out. But uh, you know, if he can't uh, put chicken, uh, chicken in every pot uh, without crashing the economy, then I think he's going to have a problem. That is absolute. Well, I'm not going to have time to get to China's super state, and they're calling it the new Third Reich. I want to talk to you about that next week. But what we've covered today is indication that uh, those in the Middle East are moving very close to the prophetic scenario found in God's Word. The rest of the world will fall in line as well. And one of the reasons that we have Mr. Ken Timmerman, he is an author. He was just writing before we went on the air with him an article for a newspaper or magazine. And Ken, thank you so very much. We'll be looking for that article. We'll post it on our website. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week, buddy. Thanks so much, Jimmy. It's always a pleasure. We're going to take a break when we come back. David Dolan standing by with his Middle East News Update. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today.
How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central. We're so glad you could join us. David Dolan standing by. David is going to give us a Middle East news update. We'll talk about the Israeli elections. I'll do that with Winky Madad in another segment of this broadcast today. But I want to talk to David about that as well. In fact, David, let's get right underway with our discussion The Israeli elections next Tuesday, it's going to be high security. It's going to be a very interesting election, one of the most talked about elections in recent history. I mean, uh, this is a a chance for the long-reigning prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, to be defeated. Let me ask you the very first obvious question. Do you think Netanyahu is going to be reelected or not? Well, Jimmy, the latest opinion poll uh, published Thursday by Channel 12 in Israel showed the opposition blue-white party led by Benny Gantz is still ahead of uh, Netanyahu's Likud party in the polls, showing that Gantz will get 30 Knesset seats, the Likud will get 26. So uh, Gantz's party, it looks like, will emerge as new alliance with a couple other people, uh, former generals as well, will emerge as the largest single party. Having said that, the Israeli system, as we always point out, being a coalition system where you need a bunch of different parties to put together a government, the overall polls still show that the right, the right-wing parties, are in the majority. And, Jimmy, this has been the case since 1992, actually. The Israeli left-wing, it used to dominate elections in the 60s and 70s. Likud came to power in 76, and in 92, they regained power, and ever since then, basically, the vote has gone 
to the right. And so it will be inconclusive, probably. We won't know on Thursday morning next week who the prime minister will be. The president has to evaluate this. He could ask Gantz first to form a government if he does indeed get the majority of the seats, or a larger amount, I should say. It's still just one-fourth of the Knesset, 30 seats, but it would be the largest single party again. He may ask Gantz, or he may do the same calculation I'm talking about. This is President Rivlin. He's the one that has to decide and uh, realize that Gantz has a smaller chance of forming a viable government than Netanyahu has a greater chance, and he may ask him. But it's probably going to be confused. We're probably going to have several months of a haggling and wrangling, so this is not over. It's going to be like the U.S. election, probably, where George W. Bush and Al Gore came out basically even, and it was, what, weeks, many weeks before we knew who the next president would be. It's probably going to be the same situation after next Wednesday's election. Never a dull moment when you look at Israeli politics, and we're going to endeavor to try to stay on top of it. Really, it's after the nation goes to the polls and has their say in who they would like to be in leadership as it relates to the next government of Israel. Uh, But that's only the beginning. That's when everything really starts going crazy. We'll talk more about that with David when we get together next week. David, let me talk to you about what Syria is saying. In fact, they're making a vow to recapture the Golan Heights, and they say they're going to do it by any and all means, whatever it takes, they're going to get the Golan Heights back. Boy, that's quite a threat. It's the strongest statement we've had so far from the Syrians in in actually many decades, Jimmy, indicating that they do plan military action. This was Walid Mualem, the foreign minister, speaking on Thursday. Uh, He said, quote, U.S. President Trump's decision on the occupied Syrian Golan has a single effect. It only enhanced U.S. isolation. He went on to say that every inch, I'm quoting, of the occupied Syrian territories will be liberated. So they are obviously saying they're ready to go to war. He's talking about the north of Syria, too, that all U.S. forces need to get out of there. Then no Turkish forces. But, of course, Iran is still in the country, and that's the main problem. So it's a a very strong statement. And, of course, it came on the same day as Prime Minister Netanyahu was in Russia meeting with Vladimir Putin to discuss the situation in Syria, to discuss Israel's perceived need to continue to um, go after Iranian targets, the missile factories, weapons trading facilities, all the different things they have now in uh, Syria. He made it clear we are going to continue to go after them, and we need to coordinate that with Russia. And the fact that the Russians were willing to meet with him, Jimmy, and just so quickly, and of course at the top level, Vladimir Putin, and then the other things that happened with the uh, return of a Israeli soldier, the other things that happened, indicate that Russia at least will allow Israel to continue to act, but Syria is stating quite clearly now that they don't see it as fair game. They are going to not only attack Israel if it goes after Iranian positions, but they are going to eventually attack Israel to get back the Golan Heights. So uh, a declaration of war, essentially, from Syria, a very important development indeed. If they were successful and did recapture the Golden Heights, that would give them a great launch pad 
for trying to take out all of the state of Israel, would it not? You'd have Iran up there joining with them, possibly Russia, for sure Hezbollah over in Lebanon. That would be a bad, bad move for Israel if that was able to be accomplished. Well, Jimmy, we call it the strategic plateau because it is a strategic piece of land located next to three countries, right between Israel, Lebanon, and Syria, not too far from Jordan either, just a few miles from Jordan. In fact, the southern Golan Heights borders Jordan as well. So you've got four countries at play right there. And it is, as we say, the high ground. You can see down into Tiberias, one of Israel's cities, from it. You can see the entire uh, Sea of Galilee, the Kinneret. You can see all of the northern upper Galilee area where I lived for several years. You can see all the Israeli towns and cities from there. You can even, from some towers on the Golan, look out towards the Mediterranean and see uh, pretty much all the way to Haifa. So this is very strategic ground just in a sight uh, way, but uh, its location, the fact that it's above all these Israelis, uh, tens of thousands of people, all of these things. And again, this is not just a theory. We had the debate before the pullout from Gaza in Israel. Will Gaza be used as a launching pad for attacks in the future if we pull out? Well, we now know the answer to that is yes. Well, we know that the Golan was used all the time as a launch pad for attacks upon Israel from 1948 till 1967. Whole communities were destroyed by those attacks. So this is not a question it's a certainty the Israelis are not going to let that go back to Syria, Jimmy. They just won't. So we are looking at a conflict. It's just a question of, of when and who else might be involved. And we've been talking about this for weeks and months, of course. We have the situation still tense in the southern part of Israel, too. So conflict on the way, but it's just a question of when. That uh, meeting that you just mentioned uh, between the Prime Minister of Israel, Netanyahu, and Vladimir Putin of Russia, now it was very good as it relates to the election for the Prime Minister, a show of great capability with other world leaders and having conversations with them to make decisions that are key as it relates to the future of Israel. That was very important. But uh, do you think that Putin did this to help Israel and help keep Netanyahu in place, or were there some serious discussions that went on? No, the issues are very, very hot, Jimmy, and very, very serious. We had the Israeli airstrike a little over a week ago against Iranian positions near Aleppo. And as I mentioned last week, the Iranians have moved their military forces, for the most part, from the Damascus area, where they were staged, up to the north, to Aleppo, near the Mediterranean. Well, that is the area where Russia has its air and naval base uh, real close by. So the Israelis will be coming closer to uh, Russian positions any time they take on the Iranians now. So it's a very serious issue, and it was Netanyahu that requested the emergency meeting, Jimmy, not uh, Putin. But Putin did agree. He knew this was coming one week before the Israeli election, and that it would certainly help Netanyahu. And it looked like we were going very south between Israel and Russia just a few months ago. Now those relationships have been restored. So at least a war that will involve Russia and Israel fighting against each other seems to be far less likely. And, Jimmy, more importantly, this may discourage Iran from attacking Israel. 
because if they think Russia's on their side and has their back, they're much more likely to do it. If they don't think so, then they're much more likely to try to uh, maintain the calm. And some are saying that the relative calm in Gaza may be another sign that Iran is tampering things down, and the Russia factor is probably a very much part of that equation. Folks, a very important opportune meeting for the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, as it relates to his election, but also very interesting as it relates to ultimately the prophetic scenario in that region. And the reason that we bring to these microphones each and every week a man who helps us look at all of this, David Dolan. David, thank you so much, my good friend. We'll have to have another conversation next week. A lot to talk about. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. Going to take a break right now. When we come back, we'll go more delving into how the operation for an election of a prime minister does take place with Winky Madad. That's upcoming right after the break, right here on Prophecy Today. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Great to have you along in this half hour the three half-hour segments that you have promised to give me so I can give you the world and the current events that seemingly are setting the stage for a Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. But in this particular half-hour, three of our broadcast partners, Winky Madad, he's standing by in Shiloh in the center part of the state of Israel. We'll go to him in just a moment. Then John Rood is going to give us information about the European Union and what's going on with Brexit. I don't know if he has all the ducks in a row, but we'll try to talk to him about it anyway. And Colonel Bob McGinnis from the Pentagon, the United Nations, had a meeting here in the United States this week. We want to talk about the U.N. It's, I think, their 70th anniversary. We'll get some great information from all of our broadcast partners, so keep the dial set right where it is. Uh, during the break, was talking with Winky Madad, found out that this man, and I want you don't know this, folks, but every single time that we have Winky on the air, it's at the end of a Friday. Remember, he's an Orthodox Jew, so the Sabbath on Saturday, we record just beginning before the Sabbath, and we have an opportunity to talk with him when he's always making his grandmother's chicken soup. That's a favorite for the Sabbath, the Shabbat. And I can almost smell the aroma of that chicken soup. I've had some before. It is excellent. 
but you've got it just at a, a low flame right now so we can do our interview. Is that correct, Winky? Yes, it is. I'm, uh, I'm accommodating you. Uh, my chicken soup and I are already at the proper flame. <laughs> that sounds great, buddy. Well, there's nothing else to talk about as it relates to Israel except the upcoming elections. They're on Tuesday, and that's just a couple of days away. Everything is really happening in the political arena. There's never a dull moment in the political arena there in Israel. And I wanted to get your update right now. We are not at the time of the elections. They're just hours away. But what would your update right this moment be? Is the prime minister going to be reelected, or is he going to be defeated? Well, Jimmy, there are many indications that he has begun, I guess, an upsurge would be the proper term, although I think he wanted it to be delayed another one or two days. Netanyahu runs a campaign in the last three to four days in which he really pressures his loyal voters to get out and vote. That happened last time. Over two and a half days, everything changed. At the present moment that we're speaking, it seems now that Netanyahu and his Likud party are neck and neck with the blue and white party that's headed by three former chiefs of staff of Israel's army and another member of Knesset. Shows you how much uh, power you need to try to take down Bibi. you got uh, so many military commanders there. I have to stress again to our listening audience that we talk about coalition politics because really no one party ever gets 60, 61 seats in the Knesset. So it depends if all of his partners, A, pass the threshold of 3.25%, if I'm not mistaken, in order to get in, in order first to even be counted, and then they all commit themselves to him. That's where the game really begins. He, he could even come out one or two seats short, but enough parties will say, we still want Netanyahu to form the government, and the blue and white will be out. Well, and let's explain this a bit, uh, kind of flesh it out for our listeners who may not really understand a parliamentary system. That's what Israel is. They have 120 members of the Knesset. You were talking about percentage points just a moment ago. Those were percentages of the total vote, and the people go to the polls to elect parties. They do not elect a prime minister. Uh, They are, of course, trying to decide how they're going to vote on the parties that will join together to form the coalition, which will actually then elect the prime minister. Now, Blue and White is one of the 18 or so parties that are running, the Likud another, and I understand the latest is they're both at about 30 seats of the Knesset right now, each of them tied up head and head, neck and neck, as you said, But that's really not what counts, because they would have to have one more vote in order to get the simple majority as a coalition to elect Netanyahu or Benny Gantz, who is the leader of the Blue-White Party, even to be prime minister then. But after the vote is over and all of it's tallied, we see who are the parties and which ones can form a coalition— I understand then the president, uh, the president steps forward. He's a figurehead type of position, but really important right here when he asks one of the leading parties to form a coalition. And that's when it, it really begins all the back room, smoke filled room negotiations going on to form these coalitions to elect 
one of these leaders, right? Jimmy, you're basically correct. Two uh, points I just wanted to help our audience understand. Parties that do not pass that 3.25% or 3.5%, all those votes are lost. Okay? They don't count in the final counting. So the it could very well be that the sum of the votes divided up among the rest of the parties becomes smaller. In that case, uh, either on the left or the right, parties who could be potential coalition partners could be lost. That happened back in uh, infamously that I was very much uh, personally involved with in 1992 elections uh, when uh, three or four right-wing parties just disappeared off the face of the map and enabled Yitzhak Rabin to gain the prime ministership, and then that's when actually Oslo began. So the right wing in Israel, the nationalist wing, always has a shudder up and down the spines when too many right-wing parties are, are in the pool. The second thing, of course, is that all the parties are then called before the president, and they say, we ask you to ask Mr. A or Mr. B to form the coalition. If, for example, Gantz, hypothetically, comes out maybe three or four seats ahead of Likud, the president might feel, even though coalition partners recommend Netanyahu, his relationship with Netanyahu is not the best, shall we say. Mm-hmm. He might just simply say, well, let me give Gantz a chance because he has so many more. If they're tied or a difference of maybe one, then it will go to Netanyahu because, as we know, most of the potential coalition partners have already committed themselves to saying they will recommend Netanyahu. Well, now we understand how it's going to come about that there is a man who will be elected prime minister. And the reason I say a man this time, there have been women, and there are women involved in becoming members of the Knesset, but uh, none have risen to the power as the men have as it relates to leading a political party where they could have a real chance to become the prime minister. How long do they have to come together and form that coalition? In other words, this uh, battling going on for a position in a large enough coalition to elect a prime minister, how long will they uh, allow them to work at that? If I'm not mistaken, there are two periods. The first is four weeks, and then an additional two weeks. There are two short periods in which they get to come back to the president and say either A or B, I have 61 votes plus. And then they have to go to the Knesset. One of them makes his presentation, what his government is going to be, who his partners are going to be, what the ministers are going to be, the defense minister, this minister, and then they vote in the Knesset. Potentially, in between those times, people could betray one another and things can pop around. So that's a, I heard you in the mention, of course, at the beginning that politics are very interesting in Israel. We never know how interesting they can be. <laughs> that is always true. And the fact that the Israeli president today, Reuven Rivlin, is not really looking favorably towards Netanyahu. They have not a good relationship, so it may happen that the left-wing coalition may have the first opportunity to form the government. By the way, if that does happen, what would that mean in the future for Israel under this left-wing government? Well, that's a, that's a big if, because the blue and white will need, of course, religious parties, and some of them ultra-Orthodox, and with Lapid in there, who's been very anti-establishment uh, religious parties, that's a big if. But what it will mean, of course, is that will the idea of returning territories or yielding up territories, or the most important thing, I think, Jimmy, 
uh, now speaking, I think, is more an Israeli than any political creature, is that Netanyahu diplomatically, economically, militarily, has been so good at doing what he's doing. Of course, he hasn't applied sovereignty. He has taken down communities. But in terms of Iran, in terms of opening up Israel to Asia, South America, and all over the places like that, cyber industry, technological, going off to Russia and getting Russia to get the body, or what was left of a body of an Israeli killed in the first Lebanese war 37 years ago, which was reburied this week, reinterned this week, People in Israel think only Bibi can do those things. So it'll be very interesting to see if the public, again, gives him their full confidence in the ballot box. Please, uh, everyone that's listening to this interview with Winky Madad, pray. The Bible tells us in the New Testament to pray for those who are in higher authority, and that's exactly what must be done in the relationship with those who are going to be elected to lead the Jewish state of Israel, key. But whoever is elected, Winky, we know the bottom line. We read the last chapter, haven't we? We have, and uh, we know that the fulfillment of biblical prophecy and tradition and heritage is something that's ingrained, and with the help of those uh, Jews around the world, non-Jews who love the Jewish people and understand why we are doing what we're doing, I think we will continue to go from success to success. Amen and amen. Winky, thank you so much. Uh, You can get back to finish up your chicken soup there. Be sure to vote and uh, make sure that uh, we stay on top of this story, and I'm sure we're going to have to have you back to analyze what has happened after the election is over. But thank you so much for this interview today. Appreciate it. Jimmy, thank you very much for having me on. Goodbye to you and our listeners. We're going to now change the region from the Middle East, going to the European Union. And John Root is the man who covers that part of the world for us. Not a whole lot of questions to ask. And again, the central has to be Brexit and the pullout of Great Britain out of the European Union. Uh, Donald Tusk, who is the head of the Council for the 28 member states, saying he would be willing to give them a delay up to a year. Uh, John, if you could make some uh, sense about it, can you tell us where we are, what is going to be the situation? Well, we have a number of deadlines right now that uh, Theresa May is dealing with in, in the United Kingdom. There's an extension to June 30th. But uh, this is problematic because of the voting for the members of the European Parliament. A hard Brexit is possible April 12th. Now, Donald Tusk is saying and advocating a one-year delay. It appears for certain we're into some type of delay, which is being presented as a short delay, basically to appease the people that want to leave in the United Kingdom as well. But it appears there has to be some type of of agreement, understanding concerning a longer delay with the European Parliament, because the European Parliament elections coming up are going to be absolutely the most crucial. It's an existential crisis. European Union is going to be very careful about having British representation at that time. As well, the uh, European Court of Justice said it's legal for the United Kingdom to just revoke Article 50 as if it never happened. So there's interest to have the United Kingdom stay, but it will always be in a form that it has control from the European Union. So the offer from one year, 
It's sort of testing the waters of what we should soon seek to come. Is it possible in that year they could have another referendum? You know, that's a very good question. The votes that were voted down by the U.K. Parliament in these last weeks repeatedly, they're actually sort of uh, in the style of the European Parliament. They were just policy projections. They are not legally binding. In fact, it's astounding, but the 2016 Brexit vote itself was not legally binding, but they want to respect the right of the people. So very, very interesting there. The second referendum for whatever the question could be is still possible. Yeah, it's a possibility. We don't know what will happen at that time. We'll continue to talk about it with John. It looks like to me nationalism is on the rise among the member states of the European Union. We've talked about it before. I think you told me about 17 of them were waiting right now and considering whether they want to pull out, and they're watching what's going on with Brexit. The European Union, you know, they've made some very serious mistakes, being very inflexible, having the supra, supra state mentality, which is that they're actually trying to rule the, the member nations. And so... Coming up with these European Parliament elections, we're looking at a possibility of one-third of the European Parliament seats could go to Eurosceptic parties. So this is the rise of what we're seeing, as you say, European nationalism or populism. It's evident in just about each European member state. So the, the bottom line here is that the EU system is really broken. The European Parliament is just the crack in the door. It's basically a figurehead discussion group. And now, because it's the only place where there's a guise of European Union democracy, these populists, meaning you know, from the people, movements are able to gain higher and higher representation. So now we have Eurosceptic representatives in the part of the system which wasn't supposed to affect the system. It was completely controlled. Now, through that influence of the European Parliament, it will eventually affect the government decrees, which were never thought could be touched. You know, a couple of weeks ago, you talked about if we have 28 members and the great British people pull out of the European Union, at least 27, and then 17 you thought were ready to try to pull out. That would leave 10. I like that thought. And one way or the other, this is going to be key. And the reason we continue to talk about the political activities going on in the European Union and as it relates to Brexit is all of that which is going to be the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire moving into place. Would you agree with that, John? Yeah, absolutely. And that's right. You know, 17 of the countries have very strong Eurosceptic movements. I was doing a seminar once, and someone said, you take 27 minus 17, you got 10. Like, I'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's why we have John Rood on this broadcast with us on a weekly basis to stay on top of what is happening. We don't see a whole lot of other news unfolding there in that part of the world, but this is key as it relates to the future and Bible prophecy. John, thank you so much for your interaction with us today. We'll do it again next week. Thank you. My pleasure. 
We're going to switch now to Washington, D.C. The area of the Pentagon is where Colonel Bob McGinnis works. He's in the area of strategic planning there at the Pentagon, retired military officer, and gives us opportunity in the media to find out what he has been thinking about, talking about, planning on all day long when he's out of the office and able to either be writing a book, which he's done a number of books on the subjects we talk about, but also to interact with us media people about what is going on. Now, Bob, as I understand, this week was uh, celebrated as the 70th anniversary of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and it was in Washington, D.C. that it happened. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But first of all, for those eavesdropping on the conversation, remind us, what is NATO, how was it formed, and for what purpose? Well, 70 years ago, in 1949, three of our World War II allies came to the United States enlisting their support in forming a new alliance to counter what at the time was the perceived threat rising from the former Soviet Union. And no doubt, they guessed. It's interesting that much later, the Soviets actually asked to be a member of NATO, and of course, NATO said no. But the organization started with three. Uh, It recruited us. Today, of course, it's 29 members, and it was formed essentially to counter the maligned influence of the Soviets. And then, of course, it got a real start when we started to recognize that the Cold War was really very serious and an existential threat to all the nations in the alliance. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, the 70th anniversary, it may not be on the exact date, but this week in Washington, they had a celebration, the Secretary General of NATO speaking there at the Joint Houses of Congress. He met with the President of the United States, Donald Trump, So uh, this was a very important week as far as NATO is concerned, both in purpose and in correction as to how they must be operating. Well, it certainly has been, Jimmy. And what's uh, noteworthy here is whether or not uh, NATO continues to be a viable organization. And, of course, the Secretary General made it very clear that he understood when he spoke to the Congress that, yes, uh, there are some tensions, there are some strains. Then he, of course, called attention to the Russians and you know their type of activities. Uh, we've gone through something similar, uh, of course, uh, in the past. Uh, after the end of the Cold War in '91, NATO was kind of looking around as to what it was going to do. It joined us uh, in 2001, of course, in the war on terror, uh, sending troops to Afghanistan and Iraq, as we well know, and elsewhere. Uh, and now I think it's going through a new metamorphosis of sorts in that, uh, of course, Russia is resurgent and poking its uh, nose in all sorts of affairs to include Venezuela and Syria uh, and elsewhere under and above the water around the world. One of the topics they brought up, what are they going to do, what's NATO going to do with the Asian giant, China, and the threats that it's posing Uh, to all the nations that are part of the alliance. So this could be a new era for NATO going forward. Are they going to be able to handle both watching and staying on top of defending the European Union from Russia and also at the same time from China? Well, I think they need to be very vigilant on both fronts. Russia obviously 
right on the cusp of where Western Europe is, especially where they're finding activities in the Black Sea and Ukraine and the Republic of Georgia. But even as we speak, there is a new relationship that is really blossoming in the Baltics, in this particular case with Lithuania. And Lithuania, of course, has signed a new agreement with the United States, obviously to its own best interest, but it allows us to do more collaborative type of work, more security cooperation, and trying to do exchanges, exercises, and the like, all with an idea of preventing Russia from conducting a 2014 Crimea-style operation against the Baltics or one country in particular, in this case, Lithuania. So uh, there's a lot on the minds of the Europeans. I I think the the big thing that we're pushing back, and President Trump has been very uh, vocal about, is the obligation of every NATO member to invest at least 2% of their GDP into their defenses. And that makes prudent sense because they all went on a, uh, I suppose, some sort of a, a defense vacation or sabbatical uh, mm-hmm. after the end of the Cold War because mm-hmm. we thought war had come to an end and there'd never be conflicts again. Well, obviously, we've been proven wrong, and the Russians are back at their maligned influence and activities. And what's most disturbing, and I, I report on that today, is what the German government has failed to do. And the best economy in the Western Europe, and yet uh, the Germans not only don't spend 2%. Right now they're about at 1.37% of GDP, and they indicate they're going to decline uh, even more to about a one and a quarter percent. They're just a hollowed version of what they used to be during the Cold War when they were a rather viable force. Well, and uh, President Trump, basically from the outset of his presidency, has been after all of these nations in NATO to pay their share and he's continuing to push along that line as well. Is every NATO member state uh, stepping up in any way? Or as you mentioned, Germany is not doing that. Any others that are slacking far behind? Well, there are only five NATO nations that uh, meet that obligation. Uh, That includes, of course, the United States, Greece, Estonia, the United Kingdom, and Latvia. So others have a lot of uh, work to to do, Uh, Germany being the one that we're we're most concerned about. But it's not just in paying the bills and in investing in their defense uh, so that we have a a very uh, large and and a convincing uh, deterrent against the likes of Russia or China. Uh, But we also have some fraying of the alliance, uh, and more specifically, it's with Erdogan in Turkey, as he is, you know, just reaffirmed uh, his intention to buy the S-400 air defense weapon system from the Russians, something we've tried to prevent him from doing for a long time, because uh, in part, uh, they're also in the F-35, a fifth-generation fighter program, and uh, we've made the decision that we're just not going to uh, allow them to continue to be in the program if they uh, embrace the Russian air defense system because it compromises our uh, F-35s. Erdogan seems to be pretty close with Putin and with the Russians, and so this could be a, a very significant move on the part of NATO to 
basically disenfranchise a member nation and say, you're not going to play with us anymore. Yeah, they're going to have to either choose Russia or NATO itself. Which way do you think Turkey may go? Well, that's a tough one, Jimmy. We've been very close with the Turks for a long, long time, but they've always had an eye on several locations, looking north to Russia and, of course, looking south. Erdogan is obviously has ambitions to be the caliph of the future caliphate of all of uh, the Muslim world. He's more of a, a geopolitical politician than just a Turkish politician. And, of course, the recent election in the last few days has you know, upset his apple cart to a certain degree because he even lost there in Ankara uh, the, the election of his parliamentary uh, representative. So we'll, we'll see. He's a, a very interesting figure. And, in fact, uh, I think I have mentioned before that uh, President Sisi of Egypt told a friend of mine last year that uh, Erdogan has every intention of being the caliph. So I'm just not making that up. That's something that you know, a key leader in the Middle East believes to be true of our, our Erdogan. And we've seen his uh, unhelpfulness with regard to Iran and Syria and elsewhere. I've been to Turkey a number of times. I recognize exactly what you're saying. It's right on target, what you're telling us about Tayyip Erdogan. Well, thank you, Bob, for being available. This is a key report. We need to have this type of information to understand our world and how it's moving quickly into the end-time scenario that it's found in God's Word. Thank you, Bob. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again real soon. Well, thank you, Jimmy. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about Chick-fil-A. Have you ever had one of their chicken sandwiches? Boy, they are good, but they're under attack today. David James will join me at the broadcast table. We'll talk about that just in a moment right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm at the broadcast table, and we're here to go into our third half hour. If you're still with us, thank you. I ask you for three half hours, 90 minutes, and you have been with us all the time. Now, we have a very interesting conversation upcoming with David James. You've heard of Chick-fil-A, have you not? Uh, that's the chicken sandwich place. I've had a many a sandwich at Chick-fil-A. Love their chicken salad sandwich the best. That's not the discussion. We're going to be talking about persecution against the company, the fast food restaurant Chick-fil-A, and also their management and the stand they take on social issues. We need to understand how we need to stand on God's Word as well. The management and the ownership and the people at Chick-fil-A are taking that stand. We'll have the conversation with David about that in just a moment. And I want you to answer my poll question, if you will, before you leave the radio today. Maybe you can wait till after the broadcast. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Right there on the home page, if you'll scroll down on the left-hand side, you'll see the poll question. Here it is. Could the Israeli election this week bring forth a leader to guide Israel into the future which will be a scenario closely aligned with the prophetic scenario that's found in the Bible. 
please answer that question and pray for those who are running for political office, the leadership of the Jewish state of Israel, as it takes place this week. Our web address, remember that you can find out so much what you may need to know about Bible prophecy at the site. It is prophecytoday.com. We now bring to these microphones David James, and David is on the road. He's on his way to southern Mississippi, going to have a conference at a church down there. David, what church are you talking about in Mississippi? Right. I'll be doing a God's Plan Through the Ages conference at Bible Fellowship Church in Pass Christian, which is between uh, Gulfport, Mississippi, and New Orleans, Louisiana. And it's like several of my courses that I teach around the world. I also offer them as conferences to churches. And if people are interested, they can go to uh, biblicalintegrity.org and look under courses and seminars. And maybe some of our listeners uh, would be interested in having me be at their church as well. Looking forward to a great week. Yeah, any of the courses that David teaches, dear friends, would be a blessing at your local church, and he can put together a package fitting whatever program you want to use when you bring in a guest speaker. David will be praying for you as you go down to Mississippi. You're going to get some good black-eyed peas and cornbread down there, I'm sure. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) And some grits also, probably. Well, before we get to this week's main topic... I also wanted to have you, David, let our listeners know about a brand new book on dispensationalism that has just been published. And the reason I want everybody to know about it, you're one of the contributing authors. That's great, man. What's the name of the book? And tell us how they could get it. Sure. The book is called What is Dispensationalism? And it's a compilation. There are actually 27 different authors, starting at the very basics, how you interpret the Bible correctly, dealing with things related to the covenants, what are dispensations, what is dispensationalism itself, and all kinds of related topics like the relationship between Israel and the Church. I contributed a chapter that deals with the relationship of dispensationalism and systematic theology. Then I also contributed two articles. One is, what is the purpose of signs and wonders? And the other one is, do Christians still do miracles today? And then I also contributed two appendices. One is, what is covenant theology? And the other is, what is progressive dispensationalism? So I think it'd be a great help. The easiest way to get it would be to go to Amazon.com and just type in the name, what is dispensationalism? And it will take you to a third-party website called Dispensational Publishing house, but going through Amazon is probably the easiest way to find it. Well, that'll be a great opportunity for people to have a better understanding of how they would approach their interpretation of God's prophetic word. What is dispensationalism? Go to Amazon.com. David, as you well know, we have been following the story on the ongoing campaign against the restaurant Chick-fil-A. We decided to deal with the issue this week after the fast food restaurant was recently blocked from opening a location at a second airport in as many weeks. Talk to us about this. Sure. Well, I'll briefly read a paragraph from an article that that dealt with it. The opening paragraph was this. For the second time in two weeks, conservative-leaning chain Chick-fil-A has been blocked from opening a new restaurant in an airport. According to New York State Assemblyman Sean Ryan, uh, plans to open a Chick-fil-A in the food court of the Buffalo-Niagara International uh, Airport have been scrapped 
because of the changed history of donating to groups with anti-LGBTQ agendas. And last week, which would be the week before, a similar decision was made concerning the airport at uh, San Antonio. And when we think about the groups that Chick-fil-A has donated to, uh, one would be, for example, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. They've donated to the Salvation Army, and they also have uh, donated funds to a Christian residential home. And all of these groups would be for the traditional view of biblical marriage, one man, one woman, for life. And this is what they are coming under attack for. Well, if people like chicken sandwiches, they're known for their chicken sandwiches. I'm talking about Chick-fil-A, of course. And uh, you're probably somewhat familiar with them. But can you give us, David, some background information about this restaurant chain? Sure. Well, it started back in 1946 with a restaurant actually called the Dwarf House that was opened by Truett Cathy, who was a lifelong Southern Baptist, member of a Southern Baptist church, and this was in the uh, Atlanta, Georgia area. Then in 1967, they developed that into a, a chain of restaurants that is now known as Chick-fil-A, and they're headquartered in College Park, Georgia. They have over 2,200 outlets in the United States and Canada, and uh, it's actually quite large. They're probably third behind McDonald's and Wendy's, and they actually have an annual revenue of about $10 billion. So it's a large firm, but they are known for not being open on Sunday, not being open on Thanksgiving, and not being open on Christmas Day to actually to honor the Lord and to honor their employees and give it, give them those days off to worship as they choose and to spend time with their families. It's also received a lot of awards as being one of the top places to work. It's received numerous awards in the industry, and it's always rated near the top in whatever category that is under consideration. Well, I'd have to give a personal testimony because of the subject. I've eaten at a Chick-fil-A. I love the chicken salad sandwich. Man, that make you want to slap your grandmother for another piece of that salad sandwich. Uh, but it is a good place to eat. Now, we've also got to remember this is not the first time that Chick-fil-A has come under fire. And there's a fairly long history of liberals being upset over its conservative values concerning marriage and the family, as you've been telling us. Uh, that's true. It actually goes back many years because, in fact, uh, the founder was uh, really quite outspoken and, and very firm in his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his commitment to the Bible and biblical truth. And going back even as far as 2012, and and uh, the founder has now gone home to be with the Lord, but back a number of years ago, seven years ago, he had made some comments about him being for the traditional family, a biblical-based family, and he was really taken to task, even in the public and in the uh, the national media. And when he was in response to a question concerning the franchise's support for the traditional family, 
Truacathy replied, guilty as charged. And then he went on to say this, and this is a quote that he gave a, a media outlet. We are very much supportive of the family. The biblical definition of the family unit, we are a family-owned business, a family-led business, and we are married to our first wives. We give God thanks for that. We know that it might not be popular with everyone, but we thank the Lord. We live in a country where we can share our values and operate on biblical principles. So that's a that's a great testimony of someone who is willing to uh, take a firm stand and then also be willing to take whatever heat that might come along with that in, in today's increasingly secular and, I would say, anti-Christian environment. Well, that leads me to my next question. What has been the response by Chick-fil-A and others to this most recent controversy? Well, Chick-fil-A put out a statement, and they said this, Recent coverage about Chick-fil-A continues to derive an inaccurate narrative about our brand. We do not have a political or social agenda or discriminate against any group. More than 145,000 people from different backgrounds and beliefs represent the Chick-fil-A brand. We embrace all people, regardless of religion, race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or gender identity. So they're not discriminating, even though they are exercising their First Amendment rights for religion and freedom of speech to stand with those groups who share their values. Then concerning the issue in Texas, the Texas Attorney General, said that he plans to investigate whether the San Antonio City Council violated the First Amendment when it banned Chick-fil-A from participating as a vendor at their airport. And, in fact, he said this, the city of San Antonio's decision to exclude Chick-fil-A based on the religious beliefs associated with the company and its founders is the opposite of tolerance. It's discriminatory and not only out of step with Texas values, but inconsistent with the Constitution and Texas law. And then the uh, Texas governor, Greg Abbott, weighed in, and he said this, the ban has the stench of religious discrimination against Chick-fil-A. And this, I would agree with the statements by both of these men. Yeah, absolutely. Boy, you don't mess with Texas. And if you don't believe that, try to drive across the border from any state into Texas. That's the first sign that meets you. Don't mess with Texas. Well, that's what they're dealing with there in the state of Texas and uh, the closing down of an opportunity for Chick-fil-A in their airport. Although what we're seeing here in America, David, it's it's nothing compared to what kind of persecution is happening to Christians in some of the other countries of the world, as we've reported recently. I think the trend is disturbing for a country that's originally founded on Christian ideals. I, I agree with you, and I think that the climate is going to continue to deteriorate. We certainly, as you said, we can't place ourselves even anywhere close to the same category of Christians in China or North Korea or in Africa or in other places in the world who are being slaughtered almost daily for their faith. Yet at the same time, there is this erosion of Christian values that actually made the United States this, you know, to borrow somebody else's phrase, a shining city on a hill. And we also need to remember this, that the gospel has gone out to the world 
because of the freedom of the religion in the United States that have allowed Christians to gather uh, together, to pool their resources, to send missionaries, pastors, church planters around the world and, and get the gospel of Jesus Christ out to the world. And as our rights are being eroded and freedom of speech is being eroded and attacks come against the church, then those are all going to have an impact even on the United States' influence around the world. And then as we move deeper into the end times, we know that there's actually going to come severe persecution probably uh, to the United States as well as any other country. So what we see going on with with Chick-fil-A and other organizations that come under attack, simply a precursor to the end-time scenario found in God's Word. By the way, I know members of the Chick-fil-A family, the Kathy family, have contributed and helped support missionaries around the world, and employees with Chick-fil-A have done the exact same thing. We praise the Lord for these activities of the employees and the Chick-fil-A organization itself. David, a very interesting topic we had to talk about today, issues that the body of Christ need to have a biblical understanding of and how then they can walk their daily experience with the Lord. Thank you so much, David. We'll uh, have another conversation next week. Look forward to that. I look forward to it as well. Thanks, Jimmy. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to open up the Bible, take a look at the book as it relates to all the reports we had from our broadcasters here today on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. 
This is the time on the broadcast when we come together thinking through, reflecting upon what our broadcast partners had to say about current events, and then I open the Word of God and we look at the prophetic scenario that's found in the pages of this great book written by some 40 men over 1,500 years on one subject, and that would be the person of Jesus Christ and his redemptive activity as it relates to lost people who need to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I am very excited always when I get together with the broadcast partners. They come to the broadcast table to discuss these current events of the last week, and each broadcast partner has great information that we need to know about. So if you missed anything, let me tell you what you need to do. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com, and then go to PTRN. That's Prophecy Today Radio Network. There we have archived all of the conversations with the broadcast partners. You can go back and re-listen to them if you'd like to get more information from listening a second time. Or maybe you had to step away from the radio. You did not hear all the conversations. Do that at prophecytoday.com, PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. And as I exhort you each week, please tell a friend about this. Send them the link as to where they can listen to these broadcast partner reports and make sure they have an opportunity to hear these current events in light of biblical prophecy. Well, today we heard these reports from, for example, Ken Timmerman. Ken talked about Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu meeting with the Russian President Vladimir Putin. A very interesting meeting taking place They wanted to coordinate all the activities happening in Syria. As it relates to Israel, you might remember that Israel has done a number of airstrikes on those in Syria, trying to take out any ultimate enemy of the Jewish state, and in particular the Iran military sites that are there. And they have had what we would call maybe an accident and hit some of the Russian troops that are stationed in Syria as well. So that's why this was a key meeting this week. You know, Russia has become a major player in the Middle East, and they're continuing to grow their influence with other countries throughout the entire Middle East. They're going to continue to do that. Their ultimate goal is to be a superpower in this world. Everything that is going to happen as it relates to Israel and Russia was predicted some 2,500 years ago in the Bible, written down by the ancient Jewish prophets. And so when you put that together with the fact that Prime Minister Netanyahu, within one week, met with President Trump at the White House, and then went to the Kremlin in Moscow to meet with Vladimir Putin, two superpowers in this world, and the little state of Israel with representation by its prime minister, meeting and making very important political decisions that would actually be setting the stage for prophecy to be fulfilled. David Dolan and I had a conversation. We dealt with the headline, Syria has vowed to recapture the Golan Heights. They'll do this through any and all means possible. That means they could do it diplomatically. They could do it militarily, which is looking like what the outcome will be. 
The world is focused on Syria. They have been for the long seven-year period of time of a civil war there in Syria with over a half a million Syrians who have been killed. It's one of the greatest humanitarian problems in all of the world. You know the plan that is unfolding between Russia, Syria, Iran, and the other players is all biblical. It is actually setting the stage for those prophecies in Ezekiel 38, Psalm 83, and Daniel chapter 11 to be fulfilled. All the players are there. Now the threat that they want to take back the Golden Heights. Well, that's the first move that the alignment of nations will take to try to destroy the Jewish state. Winky Madad and I had a conversation about Israeli elections coming up on Tuesday. God set in place human government to make his plan play out in this world. God's way is according to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 17, where it says, He will put in the hearts and minds of political leaders to make political decisions that set the prophetic scenario in place. That's why I focus on the Israeli elections after they have been decided. We'll come back and reflect on what these new leaders or a re-elected leader may mean as far as Israel's future. Speaking of the future, John Root and I are not capable of being able to tell you what the future of Brexit's going to be. That's with Great Britain wanting to pull out of the European Union. It's a polygon. It's coming apart. We do not know actually what to say. We discussed a little bit of it. We watched the European Union and the European Commission to see what they're doing. But it is, again, a very significant stage setter for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And then Bob McGinnis from the Pentagon. We had a conversation about NATO. It's the 70th anniversary of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's helping us to understand how this organization, which came together for the purpose of protecting the European Union from Russia, has been successful in some areas, failed in other areas. Remember, there are two major players in the end of times. That would be the European Union, ultimately becoming the revived Roman Empire, and Russia, which is the Magog of Ezekiel chapter 38. At this point, NATO has been put in place to keep these two separate, but when the rapture does take place, these two major powers will vie for the leadership for the world, and NATO will really not have a say in what's going to happen, but Bible prophecy will be fulfilled. And then David James and I, a conversation on Chick-fil-A and how they have become persecuted by a group of political leaders who disagree with them as it relates to some of the social issues and how the Christian life should be lived. That conversation with David James, it's important. You need to have an understanding of it so you know how to take your stand in this day. I have to conclude by making this statement that all of these conversations, you've just heard me rehearse what they were, they are hard evidence that we are ready for the next event that God has in plan with his timeline in place. And that would be the rapture of the church. And that rapture actually could happen at any moment. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.